Welcome to Deconstructing Yourself, the podcast for metamodern mutants interested in meditation, awakening, Dzogchen, Tantra, Zen, Mahamudra, the Laundry Files, and much, much more. I'm Michael W. Taft, your host on the podcast, and in this episode I'm speaking with Guy Sengstock. Guy Sengstock is the founder and creator of The Circling Method. He's been facilitating transformation for individuals, groups, and corporations internationally for more than 20 years. He has a BFA from the San Francisco Art Institute and is the co-founder of the Arate Center for Excellence and the Bay Area Men's Circle. He is an artist, philosopher, poet, bodyworker, and visionary. And now, without further ado, I give you a conversation with Guy Sengstock. Guy, welcome to the Deconstructing Yourself podcast. Mm, I am so happy to be here. Thanks for the invite. You are so welcome. I'm just going to dive right in and ask you a question you've probably answered a million times, which is, how did you come up with circling? (laughs) Totally by accident. (laughs) I was at Burning Man. It was 1998. A group of my friends went on a walk. A couple of them got into a conflict. We ended up in a circular structure that we found out later was built by somebody who ended up becoming a student of mine learning how to circle. But out in the middle of the playa, in the middle of nowhere, we end up sitting in a circle. And me and my friend Jerry, who you know, Candelaria, just started getting interested in the depth of that conflict. And the conversation very quickly left the level of the conflict and went very deep into the two people. And then kept going deeper and blossomed into something where it was almost like this experience of both people. It's as if the deepest part of their soul got revealed and everyone was like transformed by seeing it. And then it went to the next person and then the next person and the next person. And Jerry and I just, I guess out of instinct, in some sense, worked together and ended up facilitating that whole thing. None of this was planned. We had never done anything like that before. And then after that, that about 12 hours later, like we're walking away from that and Jerry comes up to me and he points his finger back at the teepee where we were. And he's like, that, we have a name for it. And I pointed back then, I was like, yeah, that. And we spontaneously, I swear to God, this is what happened. We spontaneously just looked at each other. We stopped and paused and we just shook hands out of a commitment to whatever that was, we're going to do more of it. And then out of that handshake, we came to realize that what we were doing in there is what would be called circling. And out of that handshake came organizations and methodologies and what's turned into a kind of a whole movement that's gone worldwide at this point. It's a real important part of it, though. I think it's important to get. That's been very key for me to what circling is, is precisely how it started. And that it feels like it was a discovery of something that was innate, that Jerry and I and everyone there, it was this deep thing that happened that was deep in a different way than all of the other deep things that we were doing at that time, right? And we've been learning about it ever since. And it took a while to refine it and to kind of tell when it wasn't it and when it was it. And that whole process was a whole communal experience. And now it's refined into like, you know, I have the Circling Institute and it took years to draw out what was implicit into the explicit. I mean, that's very difficult to do. If you've ever tried to do that, that's a transformative experience in itself to make what's implicit explicit in a way that you can teach it. And that took about five, six years before we were able to kind of distinguish that there's like facets to circling and stages to it. And now there's these programs that we teach that are all about learning it and learning how to facilitate it and run your own groups and all that kind of stuff now. As you say, it's a worldwide movement and we see it everywhere. And at this point, there's like all kinds of different flavors of it, at least the way I understand it, there's kind of different circling movements or or emphasis with different emphases and so on. Where do you see this going moving forward? 
Well, a couple of things. Like some of it has to do with just my own temperament, right? Which is I don't like rules at all. And not really even out of defiance, just because I suck at following them. And <laughs> so and the sense of an open source, the tag name open source has always been towards it. And I've always on some level just appreciated any way that people were picking it up and using it and growing it. However, I would say in the last four or five years, I've come to feel differently about that because I I think that that was really important for it to develop in the beginning. But at some point, the word circling starts to become undistinct. And so I started noticing this when I started doing my own podcasting and my own, you know, YouTube channel and stuff when I talk about circling and I'd get all these people that would contact me and say, well, I looked up circling in my town and I went to it and what they described was <laughs> was nothing like circling. <laughs> I was like, wow, this is kind of weird. So what we're doing right now is actually in a certain sense, reining it back in a bit. And we're starting a whole a circling federation where the first three schools are getting together and holding a structure such that people can use the word circling, right, if they've gone through these trainings. And so we can have some kind of through line, you know, and so it's such that if other people wanted to start a new school, that there's a process that they go through. And I actually think, given that creativity is a function of constraints, I have a feeling these constraints now are actually going to afford a lot more creativity than has been the case the last number of years. So to answer your question, I would say there's two basic different schools as far as I understand. Now, I have not experienced the other one in such a long time. I helped them start their school, but circling Europe, my understanding is they're a little bit more on not focusing on one person, but focusing on like the dynamic in the group. Mm-hmm. And using the word like group field and those kinds of things. And although we do that, these names are all like arbitrary. <laughs> but like, <laughs> first of all, but I would say that what we do is really focus on, for me, circling so much about a radically deep kind of listening and the basic unit, the basic I thou unit of relation. Circling is a yoga of that I thou connection. And so I would say our style is more one of kind of a personal sense of kind of a profound listening and really getting people's worlds and really seeing like who someone is and what's going on with them. It's a little bit more of I, thou, we than kind of we space kinds of things. Although we space opens up, you know, at, at some point and then that starts doing the talking. So it's all mixed in there. But those are the two flavors, I'd say. Yeah, and I think it's really interesting how often I now see meditation groups and sanghas and communities, including circling as part of their program. What do you make of that? I'm really curious about that, too. Well, I was going to ask you what you make of it. (laughs) So you beat me to the punch because... I mean, when you say radically deep listening, I'm I'm like, okay, deep listening, that's a meditation skill. And I also could imagine that many practice communities, especially if they're a practice community that is residential, where people live there at least part of the time, or at least lots of the community lives together, there may not be that many modes of problem solving, of sharing, of talking through community difficulties available. There's the kind of pseudo Native American method of the talking stick, you know, that people yeah. use. That certainly in Shinzen retreats and so on, at least back when I was doing lots of those, we would do that a lot. And that's good for simple sharing, but mm-hmm. it seems like something more or something slightly different has been needed to really go into, let's say, more conflict-ridden territory? What do you think? I'm just guessing here. Those are all things I've actually heard, by the way. All the things that you listed are all things I've heard from them. And that all makes sense. I would say, first of all, I love meditation. I love meditation. In fact, I think I kind of cheat a little bit because I started off meditating and loved it right away. So Mm -hmm. I don't that fair, I've noticed with people, because <laughs> I like it so much. 
<laughs> There's something about the way my particular brain works. It's, I'm just like, I can't wait to meditate. So I think if we kind of look at it from and step back a little bit and look at it from a kind of more of a broader angle, I think we maybe get some light on the matter. And this is what I'm wondering about actually what you think about this is looking at what happens when you take something that's grounded in an Eastern sensibility, right? Such as meditation and Zen and Tibetan Buddhism and, and these kinds of things. And you bring them into a Western kind of metaphysics, right? What are some of the consequences of that? Or what could be some of the consequences or the tendencies that are less than desirable, right, in that translation? And I would say that one of them is, is to really understand that I think most people can get like the Western sensibility is dominated by the sense of subjectivity. And I would say that what we suffer from you can kind of hear Heidegger in the background here, but like we suffer from a dominance of being subjects in that subjectivity has a sense of self-enclosure. So a lot of times when people talk about sitting and meditating, I think sometimes what happens, right, is they meditate as subjects and that that ends up having a cycle of isolation for them. I've heard people talk about that before. And I think that's a peculiar Western thing. And so I think some of the introduction of circling into meditation communities, there's all these practical reasons for it, right? But I also think it has something to do with that what people are really seeking in meditation is in some sense to break out of the self-enclosure of subjectivity. And so I think that some people feel is they go through this kind of full enclosure of subjectivity and they're wanting contact. And what they're really wanting through that contact is a kind of release from this persistent kind of ontological sense of enclosure that we're all kind of born into in the West. So I would say that there's some of it that has to do with that, I would imagine. Because I know that some of my understanding of Zen and some of the Eastern practices are explicitly, I don't know if the word is suspicious of interpersonal interaction, at least that's a lot of people's misunderstanding of it. So there's also a sense of where I think that people are actually looking for making contact with the teacher, making contact with the relationships. And that's part of what they're looking at through meditation. So bringing that into the meditation practice, if you will, or, or combining it in kind of an ecology of practice, I guess, makes sense for that. I think it's a major part of what most meditation students that I encounter anyway are looking for is a way to break out of this sort of tin suit of individuality that they're stuck inside and somehow, as you're saying, make contact or find some vulnerability both in themselves and other people and maybe even the world, you know, not mm -hmm. just with other people, but with the world in general and just shatter that or at least temporarily shattered that sense of total isolation. Mm. And of course, mm -hmm. meditation can do that. And yet many of the ways that we're taught to meditate, as you're saying, kind of increase isolation. So yeah. very yeah. commonly you go to a retreat and everyone is silent and you're looking at the ground and not interacting with people and you're eating together, but not talking. And, you know, that would be a pretty standard retreat. And it doesn't seem to do much during the retreat anyway, to break through the sense of isolation. And in fact, might radically increase it. Right. Definitely seen people really react very poorly to that sort of environment because it's just so much more isolating in one way. Now, of yeah. course, there's a magic there where it's trying to help you to break through in another way on a different level that's non-superficial, that's not just about dialogue, especially superficial dialogue, and yeah. that opens up radically more like in the senses trying to push to a different level, you know? That's what happened for me in my Vipassana. I went to one of the Goenka Vipassana things. That's how I started meditation. That silence and that withdrawal from people was a huge part of me realizing the first three days. This was the realization for me. It was something like I started to feel an agitation 
that was just underneath the surface that I had realized was the most familiar thing in the world and that I had spent almost every action I ever took and movement and conversation I ever had was about non-experiencing that agitation. <laughs> right? Yeah, avoiding that at all costs. Totally. It was so difficult and it was so familiar. And I knew in this strange way, although I never had touched it directly like that until then. And that was really important for me to not like escape into conversation, right? It just took away, and they do a great job in that retreat of taking away basically everything, right? You don't talk for 11 days. You don't, you don't look at people. So they remove all of that. And that's what that made available for me. And at some point I started to feel deeper than it. And that changed my life, that deeper sense, right? This is the goal of that sort of format. So I totally get the reason why like people do that. I mean, profoundly, I wouldn't trade that experience for the world. This is radically was a paradigm shift for me, that experience. Yeah. So that sort of structure is meant to open someone up at a more fundamentally sensorially based level. But it does, of course, not include the intersubjective or interpersonal basically at all. And in other systems, most retreats are something like that. Most meditation retreats are either a stronger or weaker version of that kind of isolation. And there's good reason for it. But again, you kind of wait for the time when you're going to interact with everyone and we're going to have interpersonal time and learn to do that better and learn to really open up in that way. And I would say most sanghas don't really do very much of that. Yeah. It's there, but it's more like you go from meditations to kind of potluck dinner sort of thing, you know, and there's not much of a deeper way of doing the interpersonal offered. And like awareness and mindfulness practice, what I've discovered, I feel like encircling is in some sense the relational version of that. When you say that, what are you pointing to? Of something like meditation or if there was an analogy of meditation of like, let's say, awareness practice, things that develop mindfulness, just, you know, meditation, there was an analogy in relationship. I think that's what circling is. Mm-hmm. I think one of the reasons why I've been able to lead circling is because of all the meditation I've done. I just want to say that I don't know if I would have been able to take all of the different pressures and weird stuff that's happened over the years and like being part of a movement, right? And my sense of presence at a basic level in being with people, which is the ground for anything, right? Relational. If you're not there fully in a very embodied sovereign way, there's no possibility of relationship. I would say that meditation in a very deep way is the possibility of relationship, right? Of what it grounds you in. But then there's like, well, what do you say, (laughs) right? And how is it that you can communicate that encourage something other than idle talk? What are ways that you listen and ways of being present in your listening that encourage the depth of what's there in the moment between two people to come forward and to make itself known. That's what circling is in some senses, a kind of mindfulness and a practice and practicing those basic asanas, right? Of communication, of listening, of presence, and doing those with other practitioners. And what's interesting is that I think what happens, just like with meditation or just like with something like the yoga, the practical outcome of it, say you go and do yoga for a year, it's through becoming really adept at doing downward dog, right? And I hate downward dog. I never broke through the whole thing with my shoulders opening up. It just never worked for me. But if you do that and you become really good at yoga, most people do that not so that they get good at downward dog. It's because what getting good at downward dog makes possible And I would say that people's spontaneous response to being in gravity, being a body in gravity, is fundamentally different through yoga. In this way is when they're not having to think about yoga, they're just moving more naturally, they're sitting in a healthier way, all those kinds of things, right? 
And I would say the same thing with mindfulness and meditation. Hopefully, like as you meditate and you drop into more of a sense of stillness and an openness, your baseline throughout the day at some point starts to get affected where your baseline is just more open when you're not thinking about meditation at all. I think that there's a very similar thing that goes on with circling. It's not so much about becoming good at circling. It's more about what becoming good at circling makes possible. I've heard so many different times that people starting to have conversations with their mother and their father that never were possible before, right? Interesting enough, usually having to do with finally having the people in their lives feeling heard by them or seen by them, right? All those kinds of things where just people's natural responses through circling is just more open, it's more generative, it's more their communications, just more precise, like the, the depth of what they can hear in somebody's speech, and thus they're able to respond so much more of the other person, that starts to transform people's relationships, you know, and kind of relationships are what the world is made of. So it's a really cool thing, I think, circling. And it's, it's so surprising to me that there's never been a yoga with circling before. <laughs> or there's never been a yoga for relationship before, really, in this kind of way until now. But that's how I see circling, is, is that. And also, I think very recently, too, one of the reasons that it emerged, I guess we can talk about this some, too, has to do with the effect of technology on us which I think is really, really profound and yeah. quite fascinatingly scary. Yeah, there's so much to respond to in what you said. Before we go into the technology end of things and its effect on us, I just want to say that even just, and I'm using just in quotes, being able to listen deeply is profound in our society, right? And this also will reflect back on the technology discussion, but you know, people are not used to anyone actually paying attention to them totally. or slowing down enough to actually hear what they're saying. Having someone point their full attention at you in a non-aggressive way, in a really open way, is maybe one of the rarest experiences we have. And it's tremendously enlivening and beautiful and lets people sense their own, I don't know, nobility and so on. It's really an amazingly powerful force. Just putting attention on someone in a really open way. And then when you yeah. combine that with being able to hold space, like being able, and I would put both of these skills in the meditation realm as well, like not only yeah. being able to listen deeply, but also to sit and hold space. You didn't use right. that term, but you were using a similar phrase. Great term though. Yeah, just really not only paying attention, but being still, being able to sit and just allow stuff to open in a slow way where that sort of surface level of bubbling anxiety isn't driving everything. But we're just a little bit beneath that and really listening and just have some stillness. Things can unfold there much more organically, much more beautifully that you can, as you say, have conversations you never had before. It's extremely powerful. And yeah. of course, in some ways, Maybe technology currently facilitates that, like you and I are talking over, you know, the internet right now. And yeah. so technology has facilitated this conversation. But of yeah. course, as we both well know, for the most part, it's really killing that kind of slow, thoughtful discussion with a lot of unbroken attention being paid back and yeah. forth, right? Oh, totally. And I think it's on a structural level. I mean, John talks about it like this, John Verveke. He's like, we're doing this grand experiment with all of civilization right now, putting them on screens. Yes. <laughs> we have no idea what the consequences of that, but we're doing a huge experiment. And I think circling and the growth of circling is a direct response to what's going on. See if I can, I have to kind of step back a little bit and then come at it from more of a meta perspective or like a little bit of a historical one to kind of get at this. I think it's easy to understand, like, wherever there's a change in the structure of communication, it changes the world, right? So, like, going from a pre-literate 
oral society to a literate, alphabetic literate culture, transformed our whole notion of ourselves, of the entire world. It was humongously transformative than the Gutenberg, the printing press, any kind of change with human beings around the structure of communication, it transforms the mind, it transforms everything. That's just historically the case. And I think that there's been one that hasn't been noticed, at least that I've heard many people talk about at least, which is there's been another one here in the last 20 years. And I think it originally started with the answering machine, but then it went on steroids with email and the internet. And if we go back to before the answering machine, in order to have the most basic exchange of information between two people, you at least had to talk on the phone, right? There wasn't any fast, instant points of communication back and forth. So life necessitated that conversation and information exchange were coupled. Yeah, they had to be synchronous. Yes, And what's interesting about that is those conversations happen to be the very structures that you become a person through, is conversation, is through dialogue, it's through interaction. Do you have kids? I have one on the way. Oh, you do? I didn't know that. That's great. I have two kids, one who's going to be 19 and one who's nine months We're going to be sharing a similar life here together, my friend. That's right. Yeah. (laughs) I'm hearing that. (laughs) (laughs) But you could really kind of see in this time, now that I'm older having a kid, I'm so present. He is going to come to and recognize himself, right? Completely in the context of the beloved, right? And it's important to kind of get that sense because it's like we're so vulnerable when we're all born, that really the second womb is after the mother's belly is our childhood, is our parents. And that very womb is an inner subjective one. And that inner subjectivity is what forms the basis way before we say I. In fact, that I is an I that is the beloved, right? In some sense. And so I say that just to emphasize how deep this thing about communication and this synchronistic contact, how deep this runs in us and how important it is. Well, then the answering machine comes along and all of a sudden you have this situation where you uncollapse information exchange from relationship. Now you can like exchange information without having to go through this awkward, ambiguity-filled, uncomfortable thing called relating. (laughs) Because relating is a lot of things, but one thing it isn't is it's not certain. It's filled with ambiguity. And that's why it's so self-forming and personality developing is all that ambiguity, how much risk is involved. Then we had texts and emails and all those kinds of things where now we have a choice that we've never had in history, right? Where I can exchange information without having to do that hard thing. And now that's happening at multiple levels and multiple domains in ways that we don't even understand, right? And I think we're seeing the statistics that are coming out about like the amount of depression, right? The amount of suicides, young suicides, like the amount of psychiatric medication that's being prescribed, A psychologist came on the other day and he was reading the new stats. He says that if everything keeps going the way that it is, based on the statistical trends, what he said is that everybody on earth alive today, if everything keeps going in the way that it is with dating and all that kind of stuff and marriage, is that half of the world's population will die alone. That's shocking. Yeah. Yeah. And it's strange that we didn't even see that coming, really, or it happened so fast. Now, circling happened to be a yoga for how to be in contact with each other. And I think that there's people now who are growing up that don't even have a memory before the internet, right? These are the new adults. And so there's all kinds of weird stuff like that going on. And I think that circling has grown throughout the world precisely because in some way people are 
in their own way sensing this crisis happening, where people are just hungry for the most basic human contact that used to be just necessitated as a part of life. So just like in the Industrial Revolution, where machines reduced our world to a small circle in front of us, therefore, all of a sudden, we discovered we had this thing called physical fitness. (laughs) Because we stopped moving, we all got fat, right? That transformed our whole relationship to our body. And now we created these weird things called gyms, where you concentrate gravity and you pay to go in and move. I think circling is something like a gym for relationships. And I think you're just going to see more and more of it. And you're going to see the need for people to take on their relationships and do them consciously as never before, precisely because there's all these ways where it's just the easiest thing to do is to not come into contact. I think we're in the midst of all of that stuff. And I think circling is just right in the middle of it. That makes a lot of sense. I see how, you know, these forms of asynchronous communication that you're describing, especially in social media, especially mediated through the internet, have really brought out what we might loosely call sociopathic tendencies that would never be at that level in normal human conversation that's done face-to-face. And what's so strange about that is now we see those tendencies are feeding back into our actual in-person, face-to-face contact with our family and our friends and so on. So you have this very strange and somewhat disturbing trend, which we could just loosely call something like fights at Thanksgiving at the dinner table, that have taken on this really overly aggressive, highly black and white And I think kind of artificial intensity that before would have been smoothed over just by the necessities of having to learn a lot of interactive skills, communication skills, human contact skills. And between TV and the internet and so on, as we've seen, of course, everyone's aware of how these technological prosthetics that we love so much, and I love them too, but they are really good at focusing and amplifying fear and rage and despair into much higher levels than they would reach organically in a human community. And so it's leading to whole new levels of conflict and really emphasizing difference. I mean, friendship and family, we tend to emphasize sameness, right? And that helps us to start to have the safety to open up and so on. And so I'm curious, in your opinion, how does circling help people to minimally at least massage and soothe some of these really intense conflicts and hopefully even help to resolve them? Oh, yeah, totally. Well, you know, one of the most interesting things that I've gotten to do, I've done this a number of times where I'll do one-on-one work and I'll work with relationships and people will hire me to work with their families. Sometimes when I work with a family, I'll go and basically move in with them for like one to three weeks and work with them as they do their family thing. And that I have learned more about what you're asking me about from doing that than I have learned in anything else. I've probably learned more doing that about everything, (laughs) right? (laughs) And one of the things I have a knack for is I think people feel pretty comfortable with me pretty quickly. So it's easy for me to lose being a guest in someone's house feel. I just become kind of part of the furniture or something. So that's to my advantage in this. And so at some point, I would start working with the family and I would kind of melt into the background. And at certain points, when the family dynamic would start to lock and load, I would be in the corner and I'd just say, ah, pause. You know, and an example of this would be something like sitting in the kitchen in the corner, maybe like journaling or writing poetry or something like that. And then I hear the alarm clock goes off. And then the way the mother like presses the off button on the alarm clock, you can tell has in it this already disappointment that she's not going to be acknowledged for any of the hard work she's doing for her boys. Right. And she comes out and she's turning on the lights of the kitchen where she's banging the pans because she's already upset that 
the breakfast that she's going to put all her love into is not going to be appreciated and she's going to be undermined. And all of this is in the embodied movements of the way she is in the kitchen. And sure enough, like here come the two kids, the two boys, and sure enough, they run past without acknowledging her. And then there's this hurt and then they run past and she says some kind of sideways comment and then they react to that. And then at some point the dad comes in going to save the day. And, and I'm in the back corner. I'm like, the family system is getting ready to lock and load. And like I would say, take its basic family dump, right? And right before it does, I'll be like, pause. And there's like a stop, a still frame. And what I would do is I would just simply like go into the heart of that dynamic. And what's interesting is I would just have them start to use the language of disclosing their experience. And what's interesting about that is once they stop blaming each other, once they stop interpreting the hell or judging the hell out of each other, all of that language of assessment and interpretation. Now it takes something to get them to do this, but once they start to own their own experience where they just start to talk about the language of I noticed I imagined, I felt, and I wanted, right? Just having them speak, yeah, I noticed that when you raised your voice, I imagined that you were yelling at me and I felt scared and angry and I'm afraid you didn't see me. And what I really wanted is for you to, to just accept me or something, right? Mm-hmm. And what's interesting is that as they start to communicate this way, you could literally feel that dynamic, which is like this pernicious third entity. It's like the family drama. (laughs) It's like a tornado or something. It self-organizes and it runs the mouths of everybody in it. The moment you stop doing all that interpreting, it collapses. And you can literally feel the family dynamic lift off the people. And you see what the pain of the drama was hiding, was the real tragedy. And the real tragedy was, is now you're sitting here with people who are looking at each other, who are designed to love each other beyond belief. Their genetic nervous systems are built to be there for each other. And once that dynamic lifts, the real tragedy and the real pain, which is you have this group of people who are designed to be like that, that have no idea who each other are. And that's where the conversation begins, right? It's a process of them starting to articulate what's real for them and having them hear each other. At first, in a situation like that, you have to go through so much pent-up rage. You have to get through so much hurt, so much betrayal that everybody's been participating in. And to be able to hear it, it's helpful for people to really like use language that's responsible in terms of their own experience and for people to open up and hear the other person's experience and how they've been impacting that person, right? In a Mm -hmm. unique way. And as that happens, there's a real relationship that gets started. And do you feel that that use of language is embedded in circling or is this something that you kind of add to the mix? Yeah. In circling, you know, you could say there are practices that we do before circling. A lot of them have to do with doing dribble drills of speaking. And here are the main ones, right? Simply what I'm noticing, what I'm imagining, what I'm feeling, and what I'm wanting. So what I notice, what I imagine, what I feel, what I want. If you look at it, those four things are basically, if you share those four things, you're disclosing yourself. So the problem is in conflict, oftentimes people don't make the distinction between what they notice and what they imagine, right? And no wonder, because perceptually, I think we don't actually notice you looking to the left over your shoulder. We experience you not loving me. So to really have the practice linguistically and slowing down and breaking it down and owning, oh yeah, when you look to the left, when I was saying X, Y, and Z, I imagined that you weren't loving me. 
And then I felt really sad and upset. And what I really wanted is for you to pay attention to me and you wanting to. So what's interesting about that is I just made that whole thing up. I wasn't even talking about me. I just made it up. And I already feel more vulnerable. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the minute you use the language, it brings up the effect, right? That's so fascinating. And that's the key. And this is where this stuff is really good for conflict. Because in order for a conflict to be in place, all conflict is really based on arguing point of views. And what helps you kind of get out of arguing about each other's point of views is really just slowing down and saying what you're saying, but keeping it in what I noticed, what I'm imagining, what I feel, and what I'm wanting. Right? And that starts to bring in an I-thou sense of self-disclosure and vulnerability. And the more that you do that, right, the more it implicitly invites the other person to do the same. And even if just one of you does that, at some point, the person who's not doing that is going to lose steam because they need something to push against to keep the dynamic up, right? So in that sense, I would say that circling directly in those basic distinctions of communication and languaging things is really, really, really good and helpful in working through conflicts that have already started and also avoiding conflicts that are unnecessary. That's very fascinating. You brought up John Verveke, and I'm going to be interviewing him soon. We had a few technological difficulties, so it's taking longer than either of us imagined, but we're going to get there. But I've heard both him and you talking about a new thing you guys are developing. Are you willing to talk about what that might be? Oh, God, I'd love to. Yeah, so my understanding is it's called Dialogos. Yeah. You know, honestly, Michael, my sense... I also want to acknowledge you for this. Like what you have been doing on your podcast and my understanding of the spirit from which you do it essentially is the same spirit as Dialogos. My sense is it's what you're after in starting this podcast and what it's about is, I think I heard you talk about it as, and I want to ask you about this, but I heard you talk about it as, yeah, I was having all of these really cool conversations with my friends And I'm like, let's see if we can have them live and share them. That's essentially it. Yeah, that's the origin story. Yeah. And so like the whole notion of deconstructing yourself and all of those like deep, rich conversations that I'm sure that you've had, right, with your fellow meditators and teachers and everything like that, you understand, I'm imagining deeply, the impact conversations could actually have on us, wouldn't you say? You know, I'm not going to claim that I have some special understanding of it, but I will say I'm often blown away how impactful conversations really can be, not only for those having them, but even listening to good conversation is transformative. It's deeply transformative. So yeah. yeah. Yeah, listening. Listening is such a mystery to me in so many ways. And I think this starts to get at what's happening in Dialogos, which I'll go into in a second. But like when you think about listening, usually when people like think about listening, they think of listening as something like staying quiet while the other person is talking, right? At least pretending to be quiet, yeah. (laughs) Maybe a step deeper, being an empty head and letting your words fill my head. Yeah. But if you really look at the phenomenological experience of listening, right? It's nothing like that. Listening, and you can kind of get this in this sense of, for example, whoever's listening to this conversation, I'm sure at some point while I've been talking or you've been talking, you've had a thought and you went on that thought ride for some, a minute, two minutes. And then at some point you realize, oh shit, I stopped listening. And so then you start listening again until the next thought came up and then you went on that thought, right? And then you realize, oh shit, I didn't listen. Okay, I got to come back. I think one of the ways to start to really comprehend what's going on with listening is to notice how deeply coupled thinking, attention, and listening are to each other. Like you can't listen, right? And think at the same time. So whatever it is that you're doing when you're listening to somebody else, 
has to do with something like you're letting the other person think what thinks in you. Kind of like letting the other person think you for a minute. Yeah, exactly. And if you start to learn how to do that really deeply, and of course, like anything, there's depths and distinctions, just like, you know, if you just imagine for all the meditators, remember when you just first tried to like pay attention to the breath of your nostrils while meditating, like you never knew that just paying attention there, that out of that attention, if you keep doing that for long enough, like the whole world of emptiness opens up, (laughs) right? There's so much going on with that. And I think that listening, there's something like that kind of level of intelligibility starts to open up around what's possible with listening. Because to listen in some sense is to give you whatever it is that thinks in me and lets you think my thought for me. And now if you think about what it is to have a deep conversation, some thoughts, in order to think them, what makes them like a deep thought is that they rest on a different set of presuppositions. So to really hear some people who's thinking very, very deeply, now I would imagine a lot of this is happening in these pointing out exchanges between teacher and student in meditation, those non-dual pointing out moments, I would imagine have something to do with this, right? Or the same things maybe going on with the complicated sentences that you think about for 10 years, koan. To really hear some thoughts or to listen to somebody and to really, really hear them, Sometimes it requires for you to step on a whole different set of presuppositions. When you start to shift your presuppositions, that's when you start to become a different person. Some thoughts require for you to think on a completely different basis. So I think in conversation, one of the things that goes on is you start to hear in a deeper conversation, you start to hear, as Heraclitus says, you start to hear what goes through the words but is beyond the words. And when you start to hear this deeper sense of logos, that hearing is a whole experience that can be very transformative over time with people. And essentially, I think that's the locus of dialogos, is that sense of beginning to have an ear for what is it that's drawing and gathering the intelligibility between the letters, between the words, between the sentences, between the paragraphs, between the people, that there's a gathering sense of intelligibility that you listen through the words, through the people, and can start to tap into this other sense or the logos, if you will. And so dialogos is the play on the word dialogue, right? So it means through logos, And so what we're doing, John and I, it's so funny because this dialectic and the dialogos practice and this whole thing is turning out to be another movement. Man, I barely survived the first one, Michael. (laughs) (laughs) You're you're a veteran now. I'm sure you will easily survive the second. Yeah, totally. (laughs) So this is a practice that John and I I would say that John really came up with the structure of this, but this practice, dialectic and the dialogos, really emerged out of our relationship and relationship with other people, which a lot of these conversations that this emerged from, you can actually see on my YouTube channel and John's YouTube channel. And it's our attempt to formalize what we were experiencing together, where we would have these mind-blowing, epic conversations where people were talking about and making connections with things that were beyond what they could comprehend. It's that moment where you go from a dialogue or a dialectic, right, back and forth to where something catches, the logos catches, and that flame catches, and everyone's lifted. And then the conversation takes on a life of its own and becomes like radically intelligible in ways that can be really, really, really impactful. So dialectic and the dialogos practice is essentially about that. The way you're imagining this, it offers a structure or some kind of system that will reliably open up such conversations. Yeah, totally. We've done two courses so far. We've been teaching them through the Circling Institute where we've combined dialectic and the dialogos with circling 
with mindfulness practices and with contemplation practices. So dialectic and dialogos is not a standalone practice. It's at the pinnacle of a whole ecology of practices, which include meditation, contemplation, and circling skills, because all of those are used, philia sophia, right? It's so funny, that never hit me until our first course, where I was looking at philosophy, and I was like, wait a minute, this makes total sense, like circling and philosophy coming together, because philosophy comes from philia, which means the intimacy and bonds of fellowship with Sophia, which is wisdom, Hmm. right? So you could say in these courses, what we've been doing is cultivating the horizontal sense of the reciprocal opening between each other and that intimacy. And then as that forms, then we take that reciprocal opening and we, in some sense, turn upward to the vertical and start to look at having conversations that are about wisdom is a very embodied, living thing. It has nothing to do with what people think about when they think about academic philosophy. It's all about a living, dynamic, transformative experience. And how do you guys make that move available to participants, the upward turn? Mm-hmm. It's such a crucial thing, right, to what you're describing. How is that uh, engendered in this process? Well, what we do... And again, John is really emphatic about this too. And I think it's really important to remember that this is kind of an advanced practice, right? So it's like meditation, circling, getting all of that under your belt. And then what the actual practice of dialectic and the dialogos is, if you can kind of picture, say there's three people, and we're going to pick a topic of what we're going to talk about. Say we're going to talk about the virtue of courage, let's say. And what will happen is, One person will make a proposal about courage, and it'll be something like courage is X, Y, and Z. And then there's going to be the person who plays Socrates, basically, who is the midwife. And their job is to listen and educe out the thing behind and beyond what the person's thought is, right? So it's like they're practicing the deep kind of listening that we've been talking about except for at the level of ideas. And so you reduce out this proposition, and this person goes on a whole ride. It's really trippy. It can get really emotional. (laughs) And really, like the levels of ecstatic attention are just really profound. I find it really profound. Then at a certain point, oftentimes the person hits aporia. You could say the limit of their intelligibility. When that happens, then we take a moment and just honor and respect that aporia or that limitation and sit in silence for a moment. And then the person says who's been listening takes a moment and they say what they appreciated about their proposal. They say what they imagine this proposal anticipates, what direction is it going in, and what they found mysterious or missing in the proposal. And after they do that, then the listener becomes the next proposer. And then they say, okay, courage is X, Y, and Z. And then another person, then the third person listens to them in that same way. And you just keep going around like that. Wow. That sounds really fascinating. Yeah, it really is. I'm very much looking forward to see where you guys develop this process or what it develops into. Me too. So, Guy, it's unfortunately time to bring the conversation to a close. I feel like we're just getting going here. But for the sake of listeners, I'd love to have you point to where they can find out more about Circling and the Circling Institute and you and your work. Yeah. So one of the fortunate things that came out of the pandemic for us was it forced us to go online. And so now... Everything that we do is available from anywhere in the world online. And so all the courses you can take via going through the Circling Institute. We also have for pre-sale where we have self-study programs that we've just created for the first time. That's available. We have an open event every Thursday night on Zoom from 6 to 9 p.m. It's open to everybody. 
We have intensive weekends. We have one coming up in about a month. That's a deep dive into circling for a whole weekend. And then we are currently open for registration for the art of circling, which is the level one practitioner training, which is like a year long course that is a deep, deep dive into the practice. So if you go to the circlinginstitute.com, if you're interested in talking with me one-on-one and doing one-on-one coaching, just go ahead and email me at guysengstock at gmail.com and we'll talk about that. Great. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. And hopefully we can have another conversation sometime soon. I'd really like that. We definitely need to do that. Can I just say one more thing? Yep. There was something you said on, I believe it was one of your very latest podcasts. You guys were going back and forth about teaching. And you said something that I just want to say really, really, in some sense, opened and summed so many things up for me. You're saying, yeah, we do stuff. And then when there's a moment where something opens up, I just try to point to it. Mm -hmm. Just this way that you said that, and then just try to point to it. And then the person that you were interviewing said, well, what happens if they don't see it? And you're like, well, then I do some more stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Until, Until something opens up and I'll point to it. And there was something about the way that you said that, that one, I could hear the years and years and years and dedication that you've had to your practice, right? In being a teacher. And I also heard for me, on some level, that's all it's about for me. And that's all I care about is that whatever that is that opens up that you can point to and like hope that we can join together and seeing and experiencing and being whatever that is. The way you said that, for me, it's really all I care about is that, that thing, doing that. Right? It's an extremely satisfying and beautiful thing to help give birth to in the world. Yeah. Thank you for doing that. And thank you for sharing that. Again, thanks to you, Guy, for being on the show today. And let's talk again soon. Okay, my friend. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. That's it for this episode of Deconstructing Yourself. I'd like to let you know about an upcoming retreat I have available in the first half of 2024. This April, I'll be teaching a six-day residential retreat at Mount Madonna Center in the hills of Northern California. From April 14th to the 19th, I'll be leading practitioners in non-dual meditation techniques, guided meditations, and silent sitting with the group. So if you'd like to spend six days working on deepening your spiritual practice and particularly working on your non-dual meditation with me and a group of interested folks, please consider joining me at Mount Madonna this April. Just go to the deconstructingyourself.com slash events page and follow the links you find there. I look forward to seeing you at the retreat. There will also be a meditation retreat with me coming up this August in Costa Rica. You can find out more about that at the same deconstructingyourself.com slash events page. If you enjoyed the podcast, please recommend it to a friend or talk about it on social media. Doing that helps it find its way to more people who might be interested. If you're moved to support the podcast, you can do that by contributing to the production costs on my Patreon page. That's at patreon.com slash Taft. The money goes to support the recording, production, and bandwidth costs of this program, which are substantial. By contributing to Patreon, you're making it possible for me to continue to create and share these conversations as often as possible. A special perk for high-level contributors is a monthly or even bi-monthly event with me on Zoom, where you can ask me any meditation questions you have. I deeply appreciate your support. I also have a number of free resources for you, beginning with my YouTube channel. There are hundreds of hours of free guided meditations and videos there, so if you're interested, that's quite a large resource and offered to you completely free of charge. The channel address on YouTube is MWT111, or you can just search my name, Michael Taft. 
I encourage you to subscribe to the channel and join me each week for a new live guided meditation session. If you'd like to interact with a broad community of people interested in meditation, particularly those who engage with my YouTube meditations, I have a free Discord server called Deconstruct You. That's Deconstruct and then just the single capital letter U. There are a large number of discussion channels there, and it's free, so hop on the server and introduce yourself. And of course, there's the deconstructingyourself.com website itself, which has articles, interviews, and more about meditation going back over 12 years at this point. So be sure to check that out. Beyond these free options, I also have a number of paid online courses to help you grow and develop in your spiritual practice. You can find out about those either by signing up for my email list at deconstructingyourself.com slash signup or at the site deconstructingyourself.org. I look forward to seeing you in class. The Deconstructing Yourself podcast has always had excellent sound, which is the result of an amazing audio engineer and amazing human being named Stephen McNamara. He's an all-things audio person with many decades of experience in producing music and spoken word audio. If you're interested, you can contact him at his website, yogitar.com. That's Y-O-G-I-T-A-R dot com. Music on the Deconstructing Yourself podcast is a track by Peter Bauman entitled Crossing the Abyss from his album Machines of Desire. Thank you for listening. <laughs>